I want to start off uh, with a quote from N.T. Wright. Here's what uh, Pastor Wright says about Hebrews chapter 11, the point where we're at now. The long catalog is nearly done. And from here on, the pace quickens. So I'm at the catalog of the heroes of the faith. But before we allow ourselves to be caught up by that, we should pause and reflect. The writer of the Hebrews is, is determined that, this, that his readers should be thoroughly grounded in the long story which they have fallen heir. Not error, but heir. H-E-I-R what they've inherited. They need to go back to the family album to remind themselves where they had come from. They must think through the sort of faith their forebears had had and see how the long purposes of God cherished and believed in the face of impossibilities, dangers, and even death itself are finally fulfilled in the events concerning Jesus and the new life they have as a result. So how much more must we in our day learn to tell not only the story of Israel, but the story of Jesus himself and of his first followers carefully and with gratitude so that our faith and hope may in turn be nourished from the source. That's Norman Wright's words. Here's what I'm saying about this. In our telling and our retelling of the stories of Israel and the early church, uh, there, there, we find special significance. We link ourselves in, into a past, into a, a family of faith, a heritage that is godly and wonderful and sometimes awful. This is especially true when bad things happen. And that's what we're getting ready to go into when the, when the pace kind of quickens here in this passage of Scripture is when bad things happen. There's been, been, there's been many books and many sermons have been preached on how a loving God could allow suffering and evil in the world. That question rumbles through so many's minds. How could a loving God allow evil in the world? I believe those sermons, those books that have been written have been helpful to some degree, and yet all of them are unable to fully answer the question. However, I'm going to try today to answer that question somewhat. I know that I won't be able to fully answer it, but I'm hoping to answer it somewhat in your mind to be able to help you. I want to point you in the right direction today. I want to point you to the one who who can give us the faith and hope we need to endure through the evils that plague us in this world. Even if we never fully figure out why those things happen. Even if we never fully figure out why those things happen. People ask a lot of why questions. And those questions are okay to wrestle with. The whys are okay to wrestle with. But there are times that we are not going to be able to answer the why on this side of eternity. That's why this thing that we call the Christian walk requires faith. Because the whys will never be fully answered. 
We're going to hopefully help you today to understand some of the whys a little bit, some of the possibilities. But I want you to understand that nothing that I preach is formulaic. Even when I say you could do it this way, it's not a formula that's meant to be followed by every person everywhere. In any sermon that I do, some people go, well, you said this over here. Well, it wasn't a formula. It was just a way of presenting an idea. Some of the things I'm going to present today are not a formula for how you can understand. And if it doesn't neatly fit into that formula, then it's not, you know, then it it throws us off and it makes us want to quit the faith. No, it's just a way to help us understand, to begin to put our mind around things. So let's read the scriptures together. Or Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 through 40. Barring the Lord telling me to, to go back and preach any of these verses specifically out of 32 to 40, this is the only sermon you'll get on these, on these folks that are listed in these passages. We're going to be moving on to chapter 12 next week. So here's what the scripture says. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and of David and of Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms and forced justice, obtained promises, and stopped the mouth of lions, who quenched the power of fire, who escaped the edge of the sword, who were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, Women received back their dead by the resurrection and some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might again, might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed, they were with the sword, they were mistreated, they, excuse me, uh, I jumped. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Of whom the world was not worthy. It's these people. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in the dens of the caves of the earth. And and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Now listen, this isn't the sermon today. Okay, This is not the sermon. But if you are a prosperity theologian to any degree at all that you think that if you come to Jesus Christ that He'll fix everything, you need to get over it today because that is not what this passage says. You have to take out massive parts of the Bible to be a prosperity theologian. Jesus says right here through the writer of Hebrews that if you, you come to Him, you're going to join into a long line of, uh, of a family of, of faith that has suffered horrendous things. Prosperity theology is only true in the sense that one day we will be united with Him in heaven where gold is used to pave streets. It's that worthless. What we use to base economies on will be pavement in heaven. So as we go through this today, I want you to understand that we're going to talk about bad things. My goal today is not to remove the sting of bad things, but instead to give you faith and hope to endure Let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, 
the Godhead three in one. We ask you to come to this place today, to these people today, to inhabit us, to come in, to speak to us in truth and in power, that today we might understand what you're saying to our hearts, that you might radically transform us, that we might not be shaken when bad things happen. Or if shaken, that we might not fall. That we might be crushed, but not abandoned, persecuted, not destroyed. Lord, as we think about all these things, we ask that your spirit would empower us to endure suffering. Even in the absence of understanding completely why. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and God's people said, Amen. So here's some possible whys. And we're going to get these out of the passage of scriptures, out, out of what we're talking about today. The first possible why that these bad things happen to us is that God wants us to learn that in His strength we can do the impossible. Here's a possible why as to why bad things happen to good people, why God allows suffering and evil in a, in a world that, that is His creation, is that He wants us to learn that in His strength we can do the impossible. Verse 32 mentions Gideon. Now, Gideon is one of the people that can make me the maddest when it comes to church people. Because I've heard church people upon church people upon church people talk about what a bum Gideon was for laying out a fleece before God. Hello? God says right here he's in the list of the faithful. He didn't rebuke him for that. He didn't rebuke him when he needed after the fleece and he'd done all of that. He didn't rebuke him when he was afraid about taking a different army. He said, no, take Purah down and listen to the camp. And listen to what's going on. And he gave another dream. See, Gideon wasn't doubting God. Gideon was doubting Gideon. As well he should. We need to know that we're hearing from God. That it's Him that's speaking. So many times I see Christians going through life telling others what they think. If somebody tells you what they think about the Bible or they think about what God is doing... Listen, disregard it, including if I tell you what I think. You don't need my thoughts. You need God's thoughts. We need what God says about it because His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways and His thoughts are so much higher than ours. He sees the beginning from the end. We need to know what God is saying. Okay? And what God is saying about Gideon is that Gideon is an example of the faith. He's not a negative in the Scripture. He's an example of the positive in the Scripture where we can see that we can do in God's strength the impossible. Think about this. Why would God say this in Judges chapter 6? And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, Why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted us saying, Did not the Lord bring us from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? I think it's like this. Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Right? Behold, my clan 
is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But. See, Gideon had all the reason in the world to doubt Gideon. Gideon was from the least tribe in Manasseh and the least in his house. He wasn't the one who was expected to be a leader. He was the one who was expected to be the follower to go with what everybody else said. He was the least among those people. He was weak. When Gideon, when the, when the angel of the Lord came to Gideon, he was in a wine press threshing out grain. Now, listen, combines do this nowadays. Okay? A combine does this. It threshes it out, puts the straw and stuff out the back puts the wheat in the hopper but back in the day and in places where they don't have combines they'll do this typically on top of a hill they'll thresh out the grain out of the out of the shocks they'll they'll bang them they'll do all these different things to get it to come out and then as it's coming out they'll take all of it and throw it up in the air so that the wind will blow the chaff away and the grain will come back down i mean there's all these different techniques but they don't do it in an enclosed space like a wine press gideon's in a wine press because he's scared Because he's scared that Midian is going to come, the, tri- the, the nation of Midian is going to come and bring destruction on them, and he is hiding out like a chicken. And the angel of the Lord says to him, O oh, mighty man of valor, go. Gideon's like, Really? I- I'm a little wimp. But the Lord ends it with this But I will be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. God wants, wanted Gideon to learn and he wants us to learn through this example that we can do that which is impossible in his strength. We can do that which is impossible in his strength. In the 1970s, the Christian and Missionary Alliance was in the Philippines and we had decided, the, the national office had decided that we were making no progress in the Philippines. And that we were going to pull all of our missionaries out and redeploy them to, to other parts of the world. Because for whatever the reason, we had went to the Philippines too early. And the missionaries that were on the ground there said, would you give us one more term, one more, one, just four more years? We believe that God is not done here. We do agree that, that things haven't been working out, that things haven't been going and, and right, and, and, but we believe the Lord has given us a promise and we're going to do it in His power. Give us one more chance. And the alliance said, this is what we feel like the Lord's saying. Let's give Him one more chance. It's been impossible in the Philippines. It hasn't been working. Not too long ago, we pulled out of the Philippines because the Filipino church in the Christian Missionary Alliance of, of, Philipp- of the Philippines, which is Kamakop, has more churches and more members than the U.S. church. And they're sending their own missionaries. What was impossible in human strength, God said, I will empower you and I will make it possible if you will trust me. More recently, the Christian and Missionary Alliance felt the Lord was calling us to go back to our roots where we started at, which was in Manhattan. A.B. Simpson was in New York. He was the pastor of the 13th Street Presbyterian Church, most prestigious Presbyterian church in New York at the time. And he left that church because they wouldn't let him bring the immigrant dock workers, the Italians that he was reaching with the gospel, to their church because those immigrants will defile our holy, sacred place. And Simpson said, I can't stay here. 
If that's going to be the case, if we're going to hate people like that, I can't be here. Now, I'm paraphrasing his words, but that's why he pulled out. And he loved those people, but he knew that God was calling him to do something differently. And so, so that's where we sprang up. That's where the gospel tabernacle first came up. That's where all of this started at. And we felt like the Lord was leading us back there. Nyack College and Alliance Theological Seminary said, so we feel like the Lord is leading us back to, to that area. And God opened a door through the horrendous events of 9-11 that allowed us to go back there. Because the World Trade Centers came down, they started building the replacement buildings, and nobody wanted to be the first ones to move in. So the city of New York said, we'll be the first to move in. We'll move all of our city offices into World Trade Center 1 building. But that's going to leave this huge building that we've been using open. And nobody's going to want it. And the Alliance said, we'll take it. We'll put a satellite campus there of our, of our college and seminary. And we did it. And we're there. And we have a way to purchase the building too. And I don't know how that's all working out. Right now we're renting it with an option to buy it. And it's amazing how in, in a place where you can't hardly get buildings like this, God takes some horrendous event. And, and 9-11 is horrendous. But he turned it around. And he's letting different groups, and it's not just the alliance, other groups are being able to you, do the impossible there in New York City when by God's strength and by God's power as he empowers all of this. And we need to understand that. That's one of the whys. Here's another why. Evil is a parasite that threatens to destroy the world and God's people are the cure. There's another why. Because evil is a parasite that, that threatens to destroy the world and God's people are the cure. Think about verse 32 through 34. I'm going to read those to you real quick and then we're going to hit some highlights from it. And what more shall I say for time would fail to tell me of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and of David, and of Samuel, and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, uh, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Here's the, by faith conquered kingdoms, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Evil is a, is a blight on the world. It is a disease. It is a parasite that is on the world that is sucking it out. And people say, well, yeah, why does God allow it? Here's one of the reasons. Because we're the cure. Because what God wants to do is people have free will to choose to follow him. And he wants to use us to bring that message. I mean, think about the story of David and Goliath. We're the cure. Goliath was a Philistine giant who had come out, probably made Andre the Giant look small or the Big Show look small or you can think about any of those other giant wrestlers that some of you might know. He made him look small. I mean, this was a huge warrior and he, and he was coming out and he was defying the armies of the living God. And he was basically evil was standing and challenging righteousness. And David recognized this. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. This is when David is saying he's going to go out and do it. When none of Israel's soldiers will step up, David, this little shepherd boy who is ruddy in appearance, which means he's good looking. So this is like, you know, like in the army, when I was in the army, we used to tell, call the good looking guys Hollywood. You know, you weren't a real soldier, you were a Hollywood soldier. You know, the good looking guy that you, surely this guy is going out to battle. This is David. He's the good looking guy, you know, and all these things and. And, you know, and he goes out there and 
he tells Saul he's going to do it. And Saul's like, oh, this isn't going to work. And Saul says, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and, and he took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if it arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. And this is a guy who's fighting lions and bears, you know, hand to mouth. I mean, right there at him, striking him and killing him. And if he arose, excuse me, and he says, your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has really spit on the army of Israel. No. Well, he's really offended Saul, the king of Israel. No. Because he's defied the armies of the living God. Because he has set himself up to oppose the God of all the universe. The God of all the universe is going to deliver him into my hand. He's a blight on the world and a spirit-empowered person who is trusting in God's provision is the cure to the evils that are out there. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. We tend to get caught up in questions like, Why did David take more than one stone? Let me just tell you something. The Bible doesn't say anywhere why. Everything about why he took more than one rock is pure speculation. Some of them are good speculations, but they're speculation. The Bible does say why he didn't take Saul's armor, though. He hadn't tried that armor. But he knew God's armor. We miss the point that he is, what he's saying here, it wasn't in the rocks that he took. It wasn't in the sling that he took. But it was by the might of God. It was by the power of God in him being the cure to deliver a nation who was afraid, who was cowering in fear. Bad things were happening to the people of Israel and one of God's people was the cure for that evil that was being a blight on the world. Here's another why. The reasons may be God's alone and he may never reveal them. That one kind of stinks. The reasons are God's alone and he may never reveal them. If God never tells you why you're going through whatever it is that you're going through, are you going to quit him? I'm afraid to say that there's many people who do. There's many people who quit following the Lord because he won't tell them why. God may never tell you why this side of heaven. You may not be able to comprehend why. If he told you why, your head might go and explode. You may be going through something horrendous now so that something could happen 100 years from now or 200 years from now. He may never tell you why. This is all throughout this passage in the vague references that are here in verses 33 through 37. He, he spells this out there. I mean... There's vague references to different things that are going on. N.T. Wright says this, Some we can pick out, Daniel with his lions, the three young men with the fiery furnace, 
Those are the most obvious. While in other cases, the categories are somewhat loose and could refer to several candidates. The list in verses 35 through 38 of those treated brutally gives us some clues too. Elijah and Elisha both restored children who had died to their mothers. And in later books of the Maccabees, which are not in the scriptures, in the Protestant scriptures, but it's still part of the history of Israel. We have a whole family of brothers together with their mother who were tortured to death, declaring that they suffered that God would bring them to the bodily resurrection hereafter, for the rest cannot so easily be identified who was in mind. I mean, when you think about what it's saying here in this passage, you know, escape the edge of the sword, that's pretty vague. Who were made strong out of weakness, that's pretty vague, pretty vague. I mean, we can think about David who became mighty in war, but he's talking about other people as well who put foreign armies to flight. There's other people involved in that. Who was tortured? Who was refused to accept release? Who who, who suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment? They, They were stoned, they were sawn in two. I mean, who were all these references to? Those people think about it. And it says in this passage of Scripture that what happened to them was for thousands of years later to speak to us. If you keep on reading, that's what it says. And all these that committed through their faith did not receive what was promised. That's verse 39. Since they, God had promised something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Those people didn't receive all of the promises that were happening, that were, that were promised to them, because God was waiting for the fullness of time to bring Christ to reveal Him. They couldn't have understood that. They were waiting on the Messiah. They're, they're desiring the Messiah. But God was waiting for us. He may never tell you why. Can you come to a place of humble acceptance that says, God, if you never tell me why, I'll still follow you. I'll still love you. Oh, I know. I'm asking you to step out on faith. I know that your God is speaking to you, asking you to step out on faith that even in the midst of your trials and tribulations, even in the midst of horrible things that are happening in your life, that that you would trust Him if He never tells you why. And He might tell you why. But say, God, I trust you even if you never tell me why. And then maybe He will. Because here's what I think happens if, if we wait for the why. We're saying, God... You tell me why, and I'll tell you if it's good enough. You tell me why you're doing this, why you're allowing me to suffer this, and I'll tell you whether or not it's a good enough reason. God, I'm smarter than you. I'm wiser than you. You don't know what's best for me. You don't know what's best for the church. You don't know what's best for my wife, for my kids, for my family. You don't know what's best for the United States. You don't know what's best for Africa. You don't know what's best. You tell me why you're doing it, and then I'll be the judge of whether or not it's a good enough reason. Now, I know that none of us would actually probably say that out loud, but we need to realize that's what we're saying in our hearts when we say, God, I'm not going to go through this unless you tell me why. I know that hurts. That's like what I was talking about, about the sunburn. You know, the light coming in and it kind of burns a little bit because it's been hidden in the darkness. But let that speak to you. You have to say, yes, Jesus even if you don't know why. You don't get to play God. We get to let Him be God. But here's one of the most difficult explanations is to accept why God allows evil and suffering. God uses bad things to help us mature in the faith out of His love for us. 
Let that sink in. See, that's what's missing in modern America, in Western Christianity. We have no theology of suffering. We have a theology of prosperity. And if it's bad, it couldn't be from God. But, but this is a passage about suffering. I mean, these are some horrible things that are mentioned here. People sawn in two for their faith. People tortured. People stoned. All these things are horrible things. And we need to have a theology of suffering that says when bad thing happens, maybe God is trying to grow us in the faith. It's kind of like that sunburn. God doesn't want it to burn forever. He wants us to, to grow us in the faith. A.W. Tozer, who's a modern-day mystic, who is... Uh, he was a major preacher inside of the Alliance. He's since gone on to be with the Lord. He, he really liked kind of the mystics, you know, the, the kind of what I call the frou-frou-y people. I'm not so good with the frou-frou-y people, you know, but that's cool if you are. But he read a lot of stuff by Teresa of Avila. Uh, I've tried to read some of her works, and I'm just like, holy, other guys read it and love it. But it's on one occasion in the 16th century, uh, Teresa of Avila confronted God about her own suffering. She was in prayer and she confronted God about her own suffering. And she said this, you know, she's telling God, why is this suffering and all this? And here's the response that she said the Lord gave her, spoke to her spirit. He said this, this is how I deal with my friends. Here's Teresa's reply to God that she wrote down in her journal. Well, she replied sharply, in that case, you shouldn't be surprised if you don't have very many. And that's just honesty, right? I mean, here's a lady who loves Jesus, who wants to follow him with everything. She is talking about, why are you letting this stuff come on me? He says, this is how I deal with my friends. I want to grow you out of my love for you. And she's like, well, don't be surprised that you don't have very many friends, right? But yet, she didn't walk away from him. She knew that his ways were not her ways. His thoughts were not her thoughts. She, his ways were higher. His thoughts were higher. And she said, I'm going to follow you anyways. I'm going to love you anyways. I'm going to keep pursuing you anyways. We see this happen. Suffering to grow God's people in this passage of Scripture. Because remember, he referred to, to David, right? Who was a man after God's own heart. Now think about David. We hear uh, about David In 2 Samuel, David has had an affair with Bathsheba. He's gotten her pregnant, right? And David is is there, and Nathan the prophet comes and rebukes him. Now, we'll give you the VeggieTales version. There once was a man, a very rich man. He had a lot of money, and he had... Okay, those of you who don't know the VeggieTales version, you can watch it. But Nathan kind of uses this parable to confront him about the sin that's going on in his life, but he doesn't name him. And David gets indignant. He says, who's the man? And he says, you're the man. When you did what you did with Bathsheba and killed her husband, as a result, you're the man. And David repented of this. David repented of this. But then the next chapter goes on to talk about how God killed David's son as a result. And David mourned and fasted and wept and bitterly and prayed that God would relent from that and God would not relent from that. And then when, when the son died, seven days afterwards, David raised up, he cleaned himself off, he stopped mourning and he went about and people got indignant with David. They're like, you wept and mourned while the kid was laying there dying. Now that he's dead, now you rise up and you're happy. And he said, look, it's over. God's done did it. 
And I can't sit here and keep weeping. I can't sit here and keep mourning. I have to move forward. God is using this to grow me. He's using this to grow the nation of Israel. He he wants us to move forward from this. He doesn't want us to stay here in this hurt forever and, and linger and just let this just be wallowed in. And that's what a lot of us do. We wallow in what God has done, what what bad things God has let come into our life, rather than letting it grow us in maturity, rather than letting us move on, rather than, than saying, God loves me, He allowed this in my life to grow me. We kind of respond like Teresa, well, it shouldn't be any wonder why you don't have any friends, Jesus. Except for we don't do what Teresa did, which is continue to follow Him. We just kind of sit on the sidelines and say, that's it, I'm done. Nathan's rebuke, all of this story, it doesn't make it easy to swallow all of this stuff. I'm not trying to put a spoonful of sugar to make the medicine go down. These are horrible things. They're horrible things. And maybe these are some of the reasons why. But we'll never understand all of the reasons why. I don't think we can comprehend it. But what we can understand is how we get through it all. How we make it through The passage tells us in verse 38 that we continue living in faith knowing that this present world is not the prize. That's what it says in verse 38. Of whom the world was not worthy. Of whom the world was not worthy. It's talking about these people suffering and it says the world is not worthy of them. This isn't their home. Building 429, which are modern day psalmists, they say it this way. All I know is I'm not home yet. This is not where I belong. Take this world and give me Jesus. This is not where I belong. This is not your home. God is going to destroy all that we see one day with fire and He's going to make a new heaven and a new earth and the two are going to be one and that is our home and these people understood that this world was not their home. That this was not the prize. How you get through this is stop living for the things that are here and now on this planet. Some Christians work so hard to have it good in the world, they got to keep up with the Joneses. And it's all good and fine while this is making us happy until tragedy strikes. And then we realize how worthless it all is. Boy, my iPad's nice until somebody dies. My TV's great. Going to a Pirates game is wonderful until somebody dies. And then I realize how temporary all of this is. Then I realize, wow, I can't live for this. There's something bigger. There's something, there's something better out there. The person who makes it through the tragedies and the horrible things that come in their life, they realize, they put their faith in realizing that this world is not the end. For those of us who were born again, this planet and what's going on is as close as you're ever going to get to hell. You're living through as bad as it gets. Eternity in heaven is so much better. Eternity with Him and His kingdom is so much better. This is as bad as it gets. Let that, let that be a thing to build faith in you. But also let it be something that spurs you on because for people who were not yet born again, as crappy as this world is, 
This is good as it's going to get for them. Hell is worse. This is as close to heaven as they're going to get. And we realize as Christians, we should realize this is not what we're supposed to be living for. We're supposed to be focused on the things that are eternal. I mean, the Apostle Paul tells us that to not set our things on minds, our minds on the things below, but on the things that are above. To put our minds with Him on the eternal, to keep our scope of, of thought and our focus of our eyes on the eternal. We continue in the faith knowing that God has something immeasurably better planned for us. I mean, the word in the English that we translate, the Greek word that we're translating better is used multiple times in this passage. Verse 35, rise again to a better life. Verse 40, God provided something better for us. Peace in our hearts in the present age is not what peace with God really means. We tell people with the gospel message, oh, come to Jesus Christ to give you lasting joy, peace, happiness, and life fulfillment. And as soon as they don't have peace in the present age, they get shaken and many of them fall away. Parable of the four soils. Jesus' words, not mine. Trials come. Cares of the world come. That's two of the soils. Right? Sun scorches it out. Weeds choke it out. Guys, gals, church family. Peace that's offered here on the peace that transcends understanding is a peace that knows that there's a better thing for us. It's not having peace with everything going on around us. I don't have peace right now with the killings of Christians that's going on around the world. I'm not peaceful about that. Neither should you be. I'm not peaceful about people who are getting sick and dying. I'm not peaceful about that. I have a peace that says, in the end, we have a better life with Him. Again, focused on the eternal. When heaven and earth are once again together, we have a better thing. N.T. Wright says this, In his long list of heroes and heroines of the faith, he is now drawing a conclusion from their experience similar to the one he had drawn again and again from the Old Testament earlier in the book. The fact that they suffered such things and that they demonstrated that the world wasn't worthy of them was a sign both that they believed that God was making a new world in which everything would be better and that in a belief that this was in fact true. They were out of tune with their times because they were living by faith in God's future world while society all around them was living as though the present world was all that there was or ever would be. This hardly takes the sting out of bad things. It's not meant to take the sting out of bad things. But this here and now is not what we're supposed to be living for. No Christian should be living for the here and now. But the here and now threatens to overwhelm us. And we have to go back when these bad things happen and realize this is not the end. This is temporary. Eternity is more real than this because everything that we see, can feel, can hear, can touch, can smell is going to be destroyed. And yet we will remain. N.T. Wright 
finishes up by saying this. If you could analyze the situation in each case, talking about these people in here and their stories, and explain why, eh, you made me make things not seem so bad. But part of the point is they were bad. Very bad for those involved. You can't somehow draw the sting of torture and murder out by locating it loftily on some scale of a higher invisible purpose. They're bad. It's okay to grieve. It's okay to struggle. But we say, God, you're doing something bigger than this. And here's the third thing that helps us to make it through. We continue living in faith by realizing that our faith was meant to be lived out in the context of a community of believers and not in isolation. Christianity is not a home correspondence course. An individual Christian does not a church make. It's impossible. I know I beat on this drum all the time. You are not a church by yourself. The word is always plural. Let me just give you a little bit of of something here, okay? Matt and I, because we are in the context of community with one another, when Matt's dad passed away, went on to be with the Lord, I was able to be there for Matt in that time because I was there with Matt when times were good. If Matt had been disappearing and and hadn't been around when times were good, then when Matt's dad passed away and he needed help, what could I say? I hardly know you, Matt. I haven't spent any time with you. What can we talk about? What can we sit around and talk about your dad if we don't know the same stories, if we don't know all those things? How can I be involved? How can I love you? How can I walk you through this? But you know what? There's so many Christians that when things are good, they're gone. And then things are bad, they come back, and then they go, man, the church, the church is horrible. Not the church OCCA, the church period is horrible because the church doesn't love me through all of this. Really? Nobody knows you. It's not meant to be experienced in isolation and only together when things are bad. I mean, think about this. Here it says it in verse 40, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. See, we tell and we retell the stories, the ones in the Bible and the ones that we have from each other, our times when we came to know Jesus as Lord, the times when God helped us, when He walked through us with a challenge, when He walked through us with victory, when He did all those things, because our faith is meant to be experienced in the context of a loving community that does life with one another. When you disappear regularly, if that's you, you should have no wonder. When the bad things happen, that you feel like you can't get through and that they, and they feel like the church has abandoned you. They haven't abandoned you. Nobody knows you. Each person needs to join him or herself to a larger community of believers. Instead of living in isolation, one of the ways we've chosen to do that here at OCCA is by life groups. You're not a part of the community if this is all you attend, the Sunday morning service. Nobody knows you. 
I am getting to know Jim Gamello better and better and better as I spend time talking with him outside of this worship service. I don't really get to know anything about Jim while he's sitting there listening to me preach. Right? But Jim and I get to know each other better as we sit there and eat pizza at Pizza Hut together. And different things like that. I mean, that's how we get to know one another better. And you know what? There's, there's groups in our body that are starting to figure this out even better and better and better. To the best of my knowledge, all of our, all of our sermon-based life groups are now completely open groups. And what I mean by completely open is that they're all trying to find people to come in. Now, it's a little bit different in each situation. One group doesn't have any room for any more kids. Physically can't have any more kids show up because, well, there's just no place to put them unless we want to stack them up like cordwood. You know, so, so, so they're just looking for a non-kid group, you know, non-kid people, different things like that. But they've all come and said, yeah, we're looking to add people in. One group has gone so far that unless Matt gets called into work, he's going to pronounce the benediction today. And you're going to see what's happening there in that with these strawberry plants. Realizing that it's meant to be experienced in a context of loving community that we open up and we say, come in, be a part. Let's do life together. Let's live life together. Let's love one another so that when the bad comes, as well as the good, we can walk through this together. But I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to read your homework this week. Monday is Judges chapter 6, verse uh, verse 1 through chapter 7, verse 25. I know, it's two chapters. Suck it up, buttercup. You can read two chapters in a day. It'll take you like five minutes. This is Gideon's story, not the whole thing, just the part I talked about today. Tuesday is a young David at the start of his career. That's 1 Samuel 17, 1 through 58. Wednesday is Daniel in the den of lions. Chapter 6 of Daniel. Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 through 28. Uh, Thursday is 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 23. This is an older David with the tragic loss of his son. And Friday... We have Isaiah 55, 1 through 13. This is a passage saying that we may never understand because God's ways are not our ways, but we can trust that he has a plan. And then Saturday, I want you to read Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 40. Because the telling and the retelling of our stories of faith links us into a family of faith that has been around for thousands of years. Amen? So... Pastor John's going to come here in just a moment to give a, a brief offertory teaching. And then the worship team's going to come for an offering. And then Matt's going to come to pronounce a benediction. But before we do that, let's pray. Father, we ask you that you would help us to understand when bad things happen. Not so much the why. I mean, thank you for the possible whys. But Lord, would you just speak into our hearts about the how we make it through? Would you speak into our heart about this truth that realizing this world is not our home? that we're meant to do this in community with one another, that you have something better planned for us and that this would not dominate everything that happens in our lives. And we ask it all in Jesus' name and God's people said, Amen.